Hello, and welcome to Making Excuses. I'm your host, Chase Carter. This is an audio diary of my journey through the 10th season of the podcast, Writing Excuses. Uh, And I'll take the advice that the crew gives you and apply it to the exercises, and we'll see what I come up with. Uh, I'll be discussing my writing primarily, but I implore you to listen to the show as well to see if you make the same connections, see if you come up with something new. Uh, So that way we can learn together. It is July 5th here, so I am chock full of liberty and freedom and just straight out of energy. So no coffee right now. I'm actually drinking water and lots of it because the AC is out in my apartment. So my recording studio, uh, the closet, is really, really hot. Uh, So if I faint in the middle of the podcast, please send help. Thank you. So some uh, housekeeping going forward. I'm going to change a few things in this episode and the rest of the episodes as we work through the season. I'm going to spend a lot less time recapping the episode. So the assumption will be that you have listened to the episode of Writing Excuses that this one is uh, a companion for. And so I'm only going to hit up the advice that I found the most helpful to me or that I found the most insightful, something that I learned, something that I was reminded of. And in turn, I will spend more time on the writing that I w- that was produced by the exercise that they gave at the end of the episode. I'll also do a better job of explaining how the exercises and how the advice informed my writing for the week. I realized last week I did not do a whole lot of that. And so I want to make those connections more clear for those of you listening. So if you are a beginning writer, you can see the connections I made and it might help illuminate your own path. Okay, let's get started. Recapping the episode, we are in week two of the idea month. So in this episode, we are taking the ideas that you generated from different parts of your life, whether that be media you're watching, a conversation you had, a walk you went on, etc. And we're helping to develop those into more fully fleshed ideas by a few different techniques that the crew talks about. Some of my favorite ideas that they discussed was the stakes and agency. Uh, and I'll probably really bear down on this a lot because it I find it very important and very telling whenever I'm developing a story idea. It really helps to make it a lot more prescient and a lot more interesting. Stakes and agency, that idea discussed putting your character in the center of the action or the center of the problem and doing so as quickly as possible. Don't spend a lot of time on window dressing, you know, setting the scene, doing the sort of Tolkien-esque history of the era. A literary term for this is in media res or in the middle of the action. Uh, start with a scene where there's something going on, there's already some trouble, there's already some conflict. This does a lot. This means that we get to we get to know the character as they're expressing themselves with action or thoughts or words. Uh, and you you won't it is harder for you to fall into the trap of explaining different properties of your character, different properties of your world. It's a more living example of that. Um, and also it will hook your reader a lot quicker. So your book isn't going to come off dull at first, even if it does have, a very interesting 80% after that. Uh, So stakes and agency is something that I will talk about a lot because it's very important, uh, I feel, for beginning writers. It's something that we we tend to miss out on whenever we're developing an idea. Another thing that they brought up that I found very interesting was to look at the opposite of your idea. So say you're developing a technology or a magic system uh, or a certain world with uh, an interesting hook to that world. Look at how it affects people in a good way, but also in a bad way, the best and worst uses of your idea. Uh, Dan talked about how uh, different technology would be used for the pornography industry. Uh, and that's a good example, because if we're looking at the real world, that is a an industry that has a lot of clout. Uh, for a real world example, think about 
when HD DVDs and Blu-rays were both vying for marketability. One of the reasons why Blu-ray won out is that the pornography industry decided to start producing their content on Blu-rays. And so the market share helped Blu-ray to buoy above HD DVDs. You must think about your technology in that way. Uh, how is it going to affect normal people, but how is it also going to affect the underworld, the black market, uh, people using it illegally? And that's a really interesting idea because your world, to be interesting, to be 3D and as fully fleshed as possible, will probably have criminal elements or, you know, a gray area morally and legally. Uh, so think about how that's going to be affected as well. I also liked Brandon's idea, and this is a bit more technical, but oftentimes you're not an organic idea person. You might work better whenever you can outline everything out uh, and help uh, have a process help bring your ideas to the forefront. And so his building a story idea is really good for this purpose. Uh, try to outline your plot as much as possible. Plot, setting, and character, those three things. Write those on the page and try to flesh those out with your idea. And if you come across a hole, you can't answer one of those three, that's fine. That shows you where your idea is lacking or where you may need to bring in some more uh, creative juice to fill in, the, fill in the gaps. But it helps you to focus on ideas so that way you can make it as well-rounded and interesting as possible. So those are the three ideas that I found the most interesting, but really all of the advice they gave, I think could be helpful for a beginning or intermediate writer in the idea stage of a project. Some of the best advice that also came out of this, or, or what I've relearned or learned from uh, this episode, is that the story sketches are not supposed to be seen from the book. And if you listen to episode one, my five ideas that I sketched out were kind of scenes from a book. They might have been an introductory paragraph or two or something in the middle, but something like in the book, characters and dialogue and stuff. And these sketches are not supposed to be that. Really, for it to be as helpful as possible, it needs to be bare bones, a sort of foundational skeleton with no meat, no skin, so to speak, on there yet. If you need to use short sentences, if you need to use half sentences or just ideas, that's fine. Mary talked about dropping in uh, phrases like conflict here, uh, happy ending, those sort of things, just to give you an idea of what you want out of the story. Because sometimes you do want to work up to a happy ending, and so the rest of your plot needs to help get you to that location. Or you may want to say, like, tragedy. And so the rest of your book needs to be geared towards getting your characters and your plot towards a tragic ending. And so having that goalpost set will help you to calibrate the rest of your book. Also, and this is another point, like the stakes and agency, that I find very important, and that's to identify the promises that you make early on. And the Writing Excuses crew will talk about this as well. They really like this sort of promises made to the reader because it's something you need to be uh, focused on as you're writing, especially in the beginning stages. When I say promises made, I mean, if your character starts out in a small town and realizes an epic destiny, this is the hero's tale, there are going to be promises made in the setup for that. They're probably going to go up against a, an evil force. Uh, they're probably going to find a, a relic or an item of some great import. They're probably going to meet somebody. Now, that's genre conventions making promises. You can also say, like, if your character was run out of town uh, by a village or by a city that no longer cared for them or they cr committed a crime, that crime should probably come back up. It cannot be just used to get your character out into the world and then never brought up again there are probably going to be repercussions for that crime. There will be police officers that follow up on it. There will be someone wronged who comes seeking revenge. There will be fallout that will make their journey or their quest harder on down the road because of what they did now. 
That's what I mean when I say promises made. You cannot use plot devices or you cannot use elements of story just as plot devices and then leave them alone. Keep them in mind because your reader will not forget them either. And a promise unfulfilled, at best, it will confuse your reader. At worst, it will turn them against you. And they'll be they'll get to the ending and feel unfulfilled because you did not answer all the questions or, you know, fulfill all the promises that you made. So that's something to keep in mind as you're going forward. And these ideas, well, these when we're getting into the second part of uh, the idea generation in the second episode, will really those ideas and those promises will start to come forward. And you need to keep track of those. Okay, on to the homework. So we're still working with prompts, these story sketches, 150 to 200 words. And like I said, I'm going to try, I tried my best to make them full story pitches, which means I got to some sort of ending. Sometimes it wasn't a satisfying one, or I'm not sure how to end the story, but I at least was looking in that direction. It isn't just two paragraphs from a scene. But they want you to twist or combine the ideas in certain ways, so that way you can start fleshing out the idea, really plumbing its depth for all of its potential. If you find that it has a lot of potential, great, you can carry forward. If you find out it doesn't, some changes need to be made or you need to shelve it for now, give it some more time to incubate come back to it later, you might find that uh, with perspective or with experience, you can now work with the clay and shape something a, a bit more promising this time. So the four prompts that they came up with was to take your ideas and combine two of them and see what the new uh, nascent idea is, to change the genre of one idea, to change the ages and genders of everyone in one of your stories, and then to have a character make the opposite choice that they made. So we're going to start with the first one, which is to combine two of the ideas. And from episode one, if you'll remember, my uh, story ideas, the two that I ended up combining was the one where the girl watches her father die in front of her with um, the idea of the the park, the people who live in this like giant world where these gods walk on great stone expanses uh, around the perimeters of their regions. So I'd combine those two ideas, and here's what I came up with. Rindy's father, a researcher of some renown in the capital, is killed in front of her by someone or something unknown. He thrusts a bundle of books into her hands and tells her to flee. Lost in the woods, she struggles to survive until she meets a girl claiming to be from a tribe of indigenous people who worship the massive gods who walk the stone expanses. She promises to lead Rindy safely to the capital in exchange for information from within. Both girls find only disappointment there and must look for answers elsewhere. The search leads them across the region where they witness decay and impoverishment due to strict new laws from within and beast-riding raiders from beyond. The pair attempt to save Rindy's mother from the clutches of raiders attacking her home village. They are successful, but she is changed by some unknown magic. Eventually, all of this leads to their infiltration of one of the gods, where they discover a terrifying truth and make a horrible mistake that changes the world forever. Bittersweet ending. Okay, so... That wasn't as dramatic as my first reading of either of those ideas. I've stripped away a lot of the emotionality and a lot of the the pretense that I put into that I would whenever I was writing a scene. This is a pitch. This is a story script. And so I've, I've really combined a few ideas here and dropped a little bit more. And I like the way that this worked out. Combining the two ideas helped me to realize some of the things in both of them that were sort of fuzzy on the edges. And I thought to myself, I'd come back later. At least I'm working on this nugget. So I think combining ideas, especially two that you think have a lot of potential, but you you can't really see the shape of the whole idea, this will help you to sort of maybe like putting two pieces uh, of a puzzle together. Now you have a clear picture of the whole, uh, just, just to see where they fit. 
So now I have a clear picture of what's going to push the two characters together and also what the overriding thread is. Uh, and I've also realized when I put these two ideas together that I wanted to have a bit of a bittersweet ending because both of these characters are younger people uh, and they have enough, yeah, enough emotional maturity to seek out what they want but not enough experience with the world and not enough knowledge uh, of what they're doing to get the best result. And so there were going to be mistakes made. And because I want this, because they're the protagonists of the book, their mistakes will have far-reaching consequences. And so this ending is going to open up a larger conflict. Um, if In fantasy, the trilogy is a really popular uh, convention, and the first book often like gives you a microcosm conflict, and at the end of that conflict, that problem, one problem is solved, but a larger world has been opened up to our protagonist. So this is nothing new, uh, but it is a good way to structure a first book. So that way it can stand on its own as an introduction to the world and the characters, but it also opens up the rest of the world if you were to come back to it and write some more. Uh, so I think that this these two ideas really work well together, and I might pursue it more. I never thought about combining these two because both of these ideas were ones that I had thought about for a long time and I had considered as two separate projects. But they might help each other uh, stand up uh, whenever they're combined like this. So from the first part of the show, the advice that I brought in when combining these two ideas is Brandon's little book of ideas, which I do recommend all writers to have either a note uh, a notebook with them or if you work online a lot to have a word file where you drop all of these ideas because this is what I did. These were two stories that I was working on uh, independently, uh, but I brought them together. And you can do this as well. If you have two ideas where you think they have promise, but you're not sure what to do with them, as Brandon said, just go down the list and see what pops up whenever you combine A with C or one with four, however you have them listed. And so this is a good idea. So I always recommend uh, writers having that book or that file on hand to drop uh, ideas as they spring up in your consciousness because you never, you can never know when you're going to forget them. This also brings in the stakes and the agency. Again, I still have Rindy's father dying right in front of her and that's the catalyst that sets her off on her journey. This helps us avoid the problem of the, the sort of archetypal hero's journey where they start in the small village and we have chapters of describing idyllic village life and then something changes to disrupt that life. Uh, that has its place in the annals of the genre, but it's not the sort of story I want to tell. And so our protagonist, Rindy, is set off by a traumatic effect, and that traumatic effect will color all of her actions and her emotions uh, and how she views the world as she goes forward. It will make her distrustful. It'll make her scared. Uh, and she's also working to preserve the family that she has left in the wake of losing her father. It will make developing a relationship with the other protagonist, who is of yet uh, unnamed, uh, very difficult because she's not sure what the intentions of this other girl is. So uh, again, stakes and agency. We've raised the stakes. We've given our character a reason to act at the very beginning of the book. And so I think that's a really good hook. But also we have the problem that won't be solved. And this wasn't one that I mentioned in the first part of the episode, but it's still a good one. You want your characters to be working towards a goal that maybe they won't reach or trying to solve a problem that they can't, at least in the first book. Uh, it's too tidy a thing if your book answers all of the questions and fulfills all the promises. I know I said that fulfilling promises is especially important, but you can at least address that promise that you made and perhaps say that the problem is bigger than the characters first uh, admitted. 
my idea in here is that they will try to infiltrate this god, which will be a big problem for our second protagonist since she has a religious relationship with these figures. Uh, and they will discover a terrible truth that they aren't exactly what these, they seem from the outside. And so in solving the problem, they open up a bigger can of worms, something that's going to affect their world and all the people in it, all the characters that we've met and made friends along the way are going to be affected by this truth and the new world order that sort of rises from this. And so perhaps in the wake of the ending of the first book, the problems that they had and the promises that I made don't quite matter as much as they did at first. The small problems of the individual are made light in the face of a larger threat. And I'm not sure if that's the way I'm going to go, but you can see how your imperatives will shift and your priorities will shift as you go forward. And so that's another way to, to drive the plot. It's a bit like a sitcom if you answer all the problems. You know, 25 minutes and everybody learns a lesson and then we're done. We don't want that. We want lingering problems because that's how life is. You might deal with the problem in front of you, but there are further problems down the road. So always keep that in mind. It'll make your characters feel like real people. Okay, on to uh, number two. This one, they wanted to change the genre. Uh, and I took my story of the Edward, the single father with the magical children, and I changed the genre, and the resulting story was something completely different than what I first came up with. Here it is. Edward, a stay-at-home father, is a self-proclaimed Luddite in a society increasingly comfortable with integrating or augmenting their bodies with advanced technology. This does not bother him until his two children, twins, are chosen as initial candidates for a full-body cybernetic migration. The decision splits the family, and Edward cannot cope with the changes. Three years post-integration, Edward attempts to reconnect with his children and make amends for his actions and words. He has trouble reconciling their new bodies and lifestyles, as well as having trouble taking part in the activities they enjoy given his lack of integrated tech. Things are further complicated when his wife, facing a terminal cancer diagnosis, decides to accept a full-body prosthesis as well. Edward feels increasingly alone and at odds with his emotions and beliefs. Uh, the rest of the story will chronicle a man facing necessary changes he once thought impossible. Perhaps his religion, his upbringing, or circumstances at his job underscore these principles. Ending is of yet unclear. Okay, so all of the whimsy, all of the magic has been taken out of this story because I switched it from a sort of contemporary fantasy, urban fantasy, to a sci-fi. Maybe hard sci-fi, maybe not. Uh, it depends. This is a genre that I am uh, pretty unfamiliar with. I do a little bit of reading into sci-fi, but fantasy is definitely my niche. And so uh, perhaps this is a trite example of a story idea. I'm not sure. But I, f I just found it interesting how everything changed whenever I changed the genre. The mood, the tone, the characters themselves all shifted under the weight of this new genre. And perhaps that's because uh, sci-fi tends to be more speculative and we look into human nature uh, more so than magic, which tends to explore fantasies and dreams and ideals. But I love it nonetheless. It's still, I think, a great story. Uh, this is a man coping with a changing society, which is something that a lot of people have to deal with as a new generation rises to the fore uh, and begins expressing themselves on social media and developing technologies, running businesses, all that sort of stuff. So I think this has a, this could really resonate with a lot of readers. So some of the advice that I brought forward when developing this idea is how your uh, story idea, your technology, your magic, or whatever that might be, how it changes other people's lives and how it might ruin other lives. And in fact, ruining a life is sort of the crux of our story 
story idea here. There's a new technology, people being able to fully transpose their consciousness into a body uh, out of an organic and into a mechanical or cybernetic one, uh, and how that ruins the life of a father or apparently ruins the life of a father. Uh, his children are, to his eyes, not what they once were. They've completely changed, but yet they are the same people, so they say. And in order to continue to be a father to these children, he has to reconcile uh, this change. And it goes against everything that he believes in. So this is a technology ruining life and the fallout from that. So again, we definitely have stakes in agency. I've envisioned the story starting with his children showing up to his house and telling him about the decision to do this. And we, so we get an immediate fallout. And so we can learn about these characters as their relationship falls apart. And I know that that sort of undercuts the tragedy of a relationship breaking, but the story isn't about the breaking of the relationship. The story is about fi founding new ones, reforging these relationships in the wake of what's changed. I think that's a more compelling story to tell. So starting with the breaking allows us to see how the pieces will begin to fit back together. You can also see me thinking about uh, the moral polarity uh, of decisions and my characters in this story. Uh, and those morals don't have to be like the ultimate good and the ultimate evil, although fantasy does tend to uh, affix to that quite a bit. But this could be morals more on the side of like, doing something because it is utilitarian. It's justified as the greatest good versus something that's more selfish. I haven't decided why the twins have uh, made the decision to get a full body prosthesis. Perhaps it is because their identity uh, is more aligned with uh, that body. Uh, perhaps it is for recreational means. It depends on how young they are and how naive and what I, I want that to be. Uh, but I do have in there the wife of Edward deciding for the full body prosthesis because her biological one is failing. It is riddled with cancer that it will slowly kill her. And so to maximize her life, she has decided to switch over to this, bo this cybernetic body, um, which I know is not uh, an easy choice to make. Well, I assume it is not an easy choice to make. And her and Edward will probably have to discuss this quite a bit. Uh, perhaps fight over it, argue. But that's what I'm talking about, these moral poles. We're going to be pitting characters against each other and their ideal, their ideologies and their principles will really come to bear uh, in these situations. And we're using technology to you know, bring out human nature in these issues. So playing with the moral poles will allow you to find these interesting uh, stories and these interesting conflicts. Okay, so moving on to prompt number three. In this one, the crew wanted you to change the ages and the genders of everyone in the story. And I took my one about the two brothers, one who is chasing another uh, through the countryside as he destroys things, and I changed it up a little bit. And I was able to tease out a few more details of the story, and I think it makes it a, a much more compelling idea. Let's see what you think. Theodine cuts a swath of death across the countryside in order to change her fate. Her sister, Ghislaine, follows alone. They are part of a society where all shape their lives according to holy parables. Theodine, an abdicated ruler, has set out to break that wheel. Ghislaine believes her sister's actions only follow an apocryphal translation, which ends with one of their deaths. Ghislaine has great faith and follows the story until uh, a village thrusts a young girl with no story into her care. There are auspicious signs about the birth of this child that made her family cast her out. Their eventual friendship casts doubt on Ghislaine's beliefs uh, in turn, even as she tries to set the girl upon this path, this religious path. Uh, there are troubles on their journey, conflicts of idea, etc. 
Ghislaine is unsuccessful in dealing with her sister. She deals with her twice and both times is unsuccessful. The third time leads to a major conflict. Uh, the young girl barely manages to save Ghislaine from her sister's fury, and the two of them run to regroup and reevaluate. And then there's an open ending. So this story deals with uh, two uh, opposed figures again. Uh, I know this sort of conflict is something I come back to time and again, um, but this time it is two older sisters, both of them rulers in a society where uh, these holy stories are ways to model your life, and you are more holy if your life more aligns with one of these stories. And these two rulers, Ghislaine and Theodine, the two sisters, uh, were brought up as rulers, princesses, I don't know what the term will be, but, you know, mon uh, they are part of the ruling class. Um, and as part of the ruling class, this religion was a part of their uh, their upbringing, but Theodine decides to change things up. Something prompts her to buck tradition and to go on her own way. And going on her own way means this destructive, awful, death-dealing path. And Ghislaine follows because the story tells her to. So we are dealing with moral poles here. We have two characters with definitely diametrically opposed principles. Um, only in this case, it's artificial in the sense that it is a religion that tells them that they are on opposite sides. And I think really the uh, a big part of the story is going to be highlighting the fact that what you're told is true isn't always the reality that you live in. And that modeling yourself after a supposed reality only gets you so far and can lead to this artificial happiness and can also lead to figures like Theodine uh, making a riotous and often violent breaking of that system. Um, so there's also this idea that they talked about where you want to work towards some awesome concept or awesome scene that you have in your mind and that a story idea can blossom out of that if you go back and you start questioning how events will lead you to that awesome idea. This story really revolves around that. I had this idea of a, in the true sense of the word, epic confrontation between two older people who are adept in whatever power they have and are really bringing it to bear against one another even though they don't want to but they've been put on a path that has uh, led them to direct confrontation and so to justify that I've worked out this whole backstory with Ghislaine, with Theodine and with the religion that has set them uh, on this uh, colliding journey and also I'm, I'm trying to highlight how this religion, the justification for the awesome idea would affect all levels of the world, all levels of society so the ruling class uh, measures their life against these stories as a sort of model. And so they rule in very specific ways, but the lower classes do as well. So, you know, workers, merchants, down to peasants, to the even the homeless, uh, operate in such a way that they will please their religious deities, whoever it is they follow. And who they follow depends on the path that they take. And so this means that there are probably societal concepts, like with this young girl I put in the story, where some auspicious signs, something that was read by a soothsayer or a mystic or a shaman or something like that, you know, there's always a wise person in societies like this where the belief system is based on a sort of quasi-religious element that people can turn to for guidance. And this person has said that this young girl does not have a story. She is a, a girl without a story. And Whatever that means, I've used that as a sort of term, a colloquial term for she is outside of this system for whatever reason. And because she operates outside of this system, they put her in the care of Ghislaine, thinking that she 
one of the most devout and holy, can help this girl get back on the path. Uh, but instead, her outlook, because she's been shunned, she has a certain outlook of the world, it's going to start affecting Ghislaine and how she views her actions and the things that she must do. So I really like that idea. I think there's a lot to work with. Um, we have these characters with ideas that are going to be working against each other. And so for the last one, what they wanted you to do is to have a character make the opposite choice. And the story that I'm left with, the story prompt that I'm left to work with this time is the one about Mina, the journalist who breaks the vampire story, or at least in my first prompt, she did not. In this one, she does. Let's see how it's turned out. Mina is an investigative journalist in a town which commodifies the strange and unexplainable for tourism. This makes it difficult when she breaks the story that a group of serial robbers are apparently all vampires in the classical sense. They are arrested, the world reels, and her town becomes all the more popular for occultists and sightseers. One of the vampires is acquitted and approaches Mina with an offer to tell his story, which she declines. She does not want to be known as an expert on anything paranormal. But the man is insistent on showing her that popular culture has endangered the very real lives of his people for decades, and this leads her into the forgotten, beleaguered world of vampires. Stricken by the state that their society endures, Mina is moved to tell their story. But elements both from within and from above work to silence her. Conflict will arise from that, from those elements working against her, uh, and there will be a happy ending which leads into further stories. So, in this case, I have Mina as the one who breaks the story. Uh, she does so, but the press that it gets her is something that she's not very fond of. She has aspirations to be a consummate professional, and she doesn't think that she can get there by covering the paranormal and the mystical, this new thing. Because she's grown up in a town where they definitely use it for a more capitalistic intent. And so I think she sees that as selling out, being a shill, something like that which means that she's going to be turned off from doing any more paranormal stories until she's approached by this vampire who is acquitted of a crime and he invites her to really tell the story of these individuals that are real people being affected by pop culture commodifying vampires in the way that it has. So this is an opposite idea. She didn't go searching for the story. The story came searching for her. And the vampire character is going to have to overcome her reluctance and these sort of professional dreams that she has by proving that this is a story worth telling. It's a story of caliber of her caliber. And he's going to do that by showing her the suffering uh, and the sorry state of the world. But as she tells these, this story, as what ha often happens in investigative journalism, is there's going to be elements that work against silencing her story or work towards silencing her story. She's going to have to deal with that, and a lot of the conflict will rise from there. And I know I want a happy ending. I want uh, Mina and the vampire character to prevail. And if I do enjoy this story, I think that Mina, as a character and with her background, this could lead into her sort of breaking the truth of a lot of different classical monster figures. You know, so she could uh, work with werewolves, with uh, the swamp creature, with the creatures from the Black Lagoon, the fish people, sirens or mermaids, and like show that all of these creatures actually exist in the world and are closer to humans in the in the sense of like a normal human than they are the beasts that we've made them out to be. Uh, and so because I think as a trained journalist, I think the humanization element of journalism is a very powerful storytelling element that you can find a story worth telling and that you can find an emotional ground for everyone to stand on to understand each other so that empathy can be built uh, in 
just about anywhere from the lowest story to the highest profile that stuff exists. And so I like that being a core element of Mina's story is that she discovers that her job now, given her expertise and given the uh, advantage that's been provided to her, she sort of has an obligation to tell these people's stories, to get them out there, because otherwise they're going to keep being taken advantage of. And who will then tell their story? It's It's got to be her. So I'm justifying this awesome idea of vampire bank robbers being caught and their story, story being told to the public uh, by putting Nina in the journalistic seat there, giving her reason to be reluctant and giving the vampire uh, character a reason to approach her. I'm also showing what this looks like from the bottom. So I have this high idea, but what does that mean for the people at the bottom? Uh, how, are, how are their lives affected? So because vampire society is not this like secretive Romanian old decrepit castle lifestyle, but more they are living maybe in a metaphorical or in a very real underground, I don't know, uh, their lives are less than ours because of what pop culture has done to, you know, pick and choose elements of their life and their lifestyle and show it on the big screen. And I've also, for this one, I've done a lot of what Brandon did with the plot setting character outlining and then finding where my holes are. So I didn't have a lot of plot at first, but I had a setting and a character. So my setting was this small town uh, or smaller town where tourism, occult tourism is their big draw. And so they really play that up. And a character of Mina who is tired of that and really wants to be a more professional journalist. And the plot holes that I had, I took that setting and that character and I thought about what Mina would want to do in that setting if this event occurred. And the plot sort of sprung from combining all of those elements. So Mina's a big-time journalist, and in order to break out, she had to tell this story to get her name out there. But that meant she was starting to be known as the paranormal investigator, and she hated that title. But now she must face that title because it has a lot more gravitas and a lot more uh, really impactful nature than she ever imagined it would. How are her choices going to change now? So those are my five story ideas. Uh, let me know what you think about them. Uh, you can email or comment on the website. Uh, I look forward to getting some feedback from you guys to see what you came up with or just to see what you think about the show so far. This is episode two. and episode three, looking forward, they're not going to do another idea one. We're looking more at a uh, more general idea topic. So next week's writing probably won't touch on these prompts and we'll do something else, but it will still be very helpful advice. Uh, and look forward to another full episode uh, when that breaks. I've had fun with this. I think my ideas are a lot more fleshed out and a lot more interesting and have quite a bit more depth than they did during the first episode. So I definitely recommend going and doing this exercise if you haven't already. And if you find an idea that you really like, feel free to share it with me. I might put it on the website or read something. I might have a special segment on the show. One special segment I'd like to try and see if you guys like it is a recommendation, uh, a book recommendation that sort of deals with the topic that we are discussing today. So one of the bits of advice that the crew gave for story generation is to tweak genre, to take an idea and to change the genre. And I know I mentioned this in episode one, but I really want to give it its due because I'm still reading the series and I really love it. And that's the Harry Dresden novels by Jim Butcher. It's the Dresden Files. There are currently 12 or 13 books in the series. Uh, don't quote me on that. There are quite a few. Harry Dresden is Chicago's only official wizard listed in the white pages um, who looks into and investigates different paranormal uh, activities, crimes, 
uh, events, stuff like that. No love potions made or sold. And he often has to deal with the police and other elements in order to get his job done. The The novels start off a little weak and a little, uh, I don't want to say trite. I think that's too rude. But like Jim Butcher has to take a novel or two to really feel out the idea that he's come up with with Harry Dresden. Um, but by book three, he really lands with both feet on the ground and it starts running. And the this, the series hasn't slowed down at all. Uh, I really enjoy it. It is a sort of very pulp uh, detective novel set in a world where there are vampires. You know, there are the two fairy courts whose names I'm not going to try to pronounce right now. Uh, and there's all these magical elements that really... Uh, add a lot of new ground to cover for the detective novel. You know, it's not just another Maltese Falcon MacGuffin. It's not another damsel in distress in the classical sense. It's not another, you know, mob boss making trouble in Chicago, although there is a mob boss making trouble in Chicago. He just also gets involved with fairies and, you know, demons plaguing the city and all that stuff. So definitely check it out. It will help you if you want to write a novel that sort of twists or bends or co-ops a genre. It will give you a good look of how that shapes out over a multi-novel series. Check it out. It's The uh, Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. Okay, that's going to do it for this week. So again, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, you can find me at Chase Writes on Twitter. All of my writing and this show's episodes can be found at chasewritesthings.com. Uh, I always put up my other writing there too. Uh, normally I'm writing either about games that I'm playing right now, books that I'm reading, uh, all the culture that I'm consuming, plus you know some other projects that I might have come up in the near future. So check that out. But until next time, have a good one and happy writing. Happy writing.